This is CNN Breaking News. And welcome to the second hour of The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. We're continuing this hour with breaking news. President Trump planning to hold an event at the White House tomorrow, despite the fact that he is infected with the coronavirus. It's a stunning and potentially reckless move, given the nation's top infectious disease expert, Dr. Anthony Fauci, called the White House event many believe is responsible for the Trump administration outbreak, a, quote, super spreader event. Trump's physician, Commander Sean Conley, said yesterday he expected the president could return to public engagements as soon as tomorrow. We're not sure what that is based on. We still do not have answers to basic questions about the president's health, such as, is the president still contagious? Has the president tested negative since being treated? When, in fact, when when exactly did he last test negative? When did he contract the virus? Basic questions. We still do not know the answers to. Answers you have every right to know. Ones that could be literally a matter of life and death for people the president wants to see as soon as tomorrow. Today, however, the president claims he feels perfect that he might not have recovered at all from coronavirus if it had not been for an experimental antibody therapy, which the president called a cure. It is not a cure, as CNN's Caitlin Collins reports. Just one week after he was admitted to the hospital, President Trump is insisting he's ready to get back on the campaign trail as medical experts worry it's too soon. I feel better now than I did two weeks ago. It's crazy. While stuck in isolation, Trump urged aides to schedule rallies but currently has no travel plan this weekend. Instead, he called into Rush Limbaugh's radio show for two hours today. Could have been a bad victim. I fit certain categories that aren't so great, okay? During his interview, the president exaggerated the known benefits of an experimental antibody cocktail that he was given, portraying it as a miracle. I'm just saying that we have something that will cure this now, and a cure. And without us, without Trump administration, this would never have happened. But the treatment made by Regeneron is not a cure and has not been proven to be effective in treating coronavirus. It's not widely available yet, though the company has applied for an emergency use authorization. Trump received it under a compassionate use program, though he did not mention that today. But this is better than the vaccine and it's going out literally as we speak. The antibody cocktail has shown promise. That's always been the most promising therapeutic category. The president is putting his own spin on his health, given that his doctors have declined to take questions from reporters since Monday and have only issued paper statements instead. Last night, Trump refused to answer directly whether he has since tested negative. Probably the test will be tomorrow, the actual test, because there's no reason to test all the time. But they found very little uh, infection or virus. Uh, If any, I don't know that they found any. I didn't go into it greatly with the doctors. This week, the president has made a series of head-spinning moves, first claiming that he wouldn't debate Joe Biden virtually, then asking for the debate to be delayed, and then demanding it happen next week as planned. Trump has also flip-flopped on another coronavirus relief bill, going from canceling the talks to now saying he wants a bigger dollar sign than even Democrats have asked for. I would like to see a bigger stimulus package, frankly, than either the Democrats or the Republicans are offering. I'm, I'm going in the exact opposite. Now. 
So, Jake, while we wait to see how those coronavirus negotiations play out, we do know that the president is planning on having an in-person event at the White House tomorrow, though it's not clear exactly how many people they're going to be inviting or whether the president has even gotten a negative test result as they are planning this event. The White House comms director said earlier they would let us know when the president has tested negative. And, Jake, they have not told us that yet, though the president did say last night he was going to be tested today. We have not got an update on any of those results from the White House. Yeah, I mean, I don't know if it's the medication or what, but this is erratic even for an erratic president. Caitlin Collins, thanks so much. Uh, joining us now to discuss CNN's Abby Phillip and Michael Schmidt from The New York Times. Check out Michael's uh, new book, Donald Trump versus the United States, getting great reviews and, and uh, by all accounts, uh, an, excellent, an excellent read. Uh, Abby, if President Trump's doctors continue to refuse to answer basic questions about his health, how is anyone supposed to be assured that tomorrow's White House event with him will be safe? I don't, I don't understand any of this, Jake. It doesn't make any sense. The, it doesn't make any sense that the White House would try to replicate the circumstances under which they created a massive super spreader event and a cluster of coronavirus cases at the White House by hosting people there when the president is still recovering from this very same virus and multiple White House officials at the senior level are also recovering and are in isolation. That doesn't make any sense from a political perspective, from a public health perspective. And yeah, I mean, we ought to have some sense of what you know guidelines or justification the president's doctors are using to clear him for activity and what they think his uh, his level of infectivity is. I mean, people are entitled to know that because this is a president we already know, you know, when he w wants to speak to the public, he is taking his mask off to do that. And we should know if people are being potentially put at risk. Uh, if he's hosting some kind of event tomorrow and we don't see him wearing a mask, not to mention we don't know who else on that co compound might have been exposed and, and, ha and has been infected by this virus. Right. We, I mean, there are, there are p potentially dozens of people that are infected uh, who work at the White House or have, have been to the White House. Uh, Michael, uh, one of the things that you get into in your book is the, the degree to which uh, President Trump uh, doesn't really have many guardrails around him. There really isn't anybody that's able to say, don't do that, this is a bad idea. Um, we, you, you talk about the legal aspects, Donald Trump versus the United States. Is there anyone around him that, that you can tell that would say, you know, it's probably not a good idea for you to, to have an event like this because you're still potentially infected? It doesn't seem like it. And I don't think that the people from the first two years of the administrations, the McGanns and the Kellys and such, should be absolved at that period of time. No, no, of course. A lot of things that, that went on then that, um, you know, history will probably not reflect well upon. But those people were guardrails at the same time. And there is a lot of more audacious behavior that has occurred in the last two years of the administration. That is just different. And I think it is pretty clear that those guardrails aren't there. And I think you see it most in the president's not only his desires here on the coronavirus, but also with his continued rhetoric about the Justice Department. As I write in my book, there were a wide scale effort to try and stop the president from meddling in the Justice Department's work, to try and get him to stop pressuring prosecutions. We're talking about the president of the United States using his power to go after his rivals. And the president here, with just a few months left in his first term in office, is just emboldened on this issue and is going on and on in ways that, that, I, that I just think are astounding in history about using 
law enforcement power of the state to go after the people that he thinks harmed him. Yeah, and, and on that subject, uh, Abby, just a few minutes ago on the president's favorite channel, uh, Secretary of State Mike Pompeo, who the president's been publicly chastising, uh, said that he's working hard to get, I can't even believe these words are coming out of my mouth, more of Hillary Clinton's emails out. And Dana Perino said, you know, before the election, and Pompeo said, yes, uh, working hard to get, get some out before the election. I mean, at some point, this enabling, well, not just at some point, this enabling is bad for the president, and yet, you know, all these cabinet secretaries continue to do it. Yeah, I think it's a little bit beyond enabling at this point. It, it's, um, you know, the Republican establishment on Capitol Hill, in the White House, elsewhere in the government, they are all in uh, on this strategy. You, you only have to look as far as, uh, you know, in the Senate, where you had sitting senators using their committee to try to dig up dirt on Joe Biden and release it uh, in a fashion that was designed to hurt his political campaign. Now you're hearing Pompeo explicitly saying that the timing is going to be related to this information coming out before the election, although, you know, it's hard for me to understand how they think that that's going to impact Joe Biden, how Hillary Clinton's emails are going to impact Joe Biden. And then and then on top of that, you have a word from the Justice Department that this uh, long expected Durham report is unlikely to have uh, significant findings before the election, something that the president has been really public about how angry he is about that. Look, this is everyone being involved in this project of the presidents to try to create an environment that is as close to 2016 as possible, except the, with um, with the, the subject not being Hillary Clinton, the subject being Joe Biden. And I think that that is really notable, that there is not only no, no pushback, there is full buy-in from the Republican Party in the establishment. Yeah, yeah, and I mean, it's almost as if he's trying to get the director of national intelligence, uh, John Ratcliffe, to be his own WikiLeaks, and he's trying to get uh, Durham to be his Comey to replicate the circumstances yes. under which he was elected. Uh, Michael... Um, I mean, President Trump, again, uh, criticizing Attorney General Barr, claiming Hillary Clinton should be in jail for deleting those uh, emails. During another interview, the president called for Barr to prosecute Biden and Obama. Uh, Your book has a lot of reporting that this is something President Trump asks for, the Justice Department to go after his enemies. The president's top lawyer at the White House, Don McGahn, wrote in secret memos to him in April of 2018, If you even appear to be meddling in the Justice Department's work, you could be impeached, people the Justice Department could resign, and most importantly, you could feel the effects at the ballot box. These were the warnings from the president's lawyers that I outline in my book. And to your point on the Clinton email thing, and this is something that, you know, you write a book and, you know, you get different things and not everything gets a lot of attention. I report in my book that Tom Fitton, the head of Judicial Watch was brought into the Oval Office by Steve Bannon to meet with Donald Trump about expediting the State Department's disclosure of Clinton emails. So this was the White House chief strategist bringing in this outside rabble rouser for the president to lobby the president to get more emails out from his own State Department so they could continue to discredit Clinton. It's just another example of this unprecedented use of the executive branch by the president to help himself politically. Abby Phillip, Michael Schmidt, thank you so much. Be sure to check out Michael Schmidt's great book. Why President Trump's push to get emergency approval for the Regeneron therapy he received could be potentially dangerous. And then new information about the men charged with plotting to kidnap the Democratic governor of Michigan, Gretchen Whitmer, and what one of them was getting from Amazon. Stay with us. 
In our Healthy Today, President Trump just admitting that he was, quote, not in great shape when he flew on Marine One to Walter Reed over the weekend. It's a reminder, of course, that the president's doctor said that very day that the president was doing, quote, well. And later that day, Kayleigh McEnany said the president was only going to Walter Reed out of an abundance of caution. Apparently, that's not true. The president today told Rush Limbaugh during a radio rally that the experimental antibody treatment he received healed him, and he might not have recovered from COVID at all if not for those drugs. CNN's chief medical correspondent, Dr. Sanjay Gupta, joins us now. Sanjay, we still do not have a full and complete picture of President Trump's condition, and yet now the president is continuing to push this Regeneron antibody treatment before it's even been approved by the FDA. Take a listen. We're already sending it, starting the processes. Hundreds of thousands of vials are being sent to the hospitals all over the country. People are going to get immediately better, like I did. I mean, I feel better now than I did two weeks ago. It's crazy. Your reaction? <laughs> well, I mean, um, there's, there's a few reactions. One is that obviously he's one person, and we, we don't, that's why you do studies on these things, try and figure out if, in fact, uh, you know, this is something that's making people better. There's not a lot of data around this. There is a lot of enthusiasm, and I think it's warranted. Uh, you're giving antibodies these proteins that can help neutralize the virus, and it makes sense imminently, but who does it work for? What dose to give? Does it have side effects? The, you know, that, these are the reasons you do studies. But the other thing is, you know, when he says I'm feeling better than 20 years ago, that wouldn't be the monoclonal antibodies. Those are to help neutralize the virus. Uh, what's making him feel so good? Uh, he's on other meds too, you remember. Uh, he took the remdesivir, and, and I think he's still getting steroids because typically it's a 10-day course. Of course, as you mentioned, the doctors haven't told us, so we don't know for sure. But when someone says they're feeling better like that, steroids tend to give people uh, a lot of energy. I mean, sometimes to the point where people become manic and they don't sleep. They're very restless and things like that. So uh, I don't think it's the monoclonal antibodies that are making them feel better. It, they may have worked in terms of neutralizing the virus, but we don't know. He's an N of one here, Jake. Sanjay, you regularly cover when candidates run for office and reveal their, their health records. I remember you doing it with John McCain when he ran in 2000. Eight, I remember you doing it uh, with, with plenty of other, I could go through a list. Have you ever seen uh, a White House cover up and hide so much information about such a serious disease? No, I, I, I really haven't. I mean, sometimes, you know, the, the uh, summaries that you would get from some of the candidates would be very, very cursory, you know, but they would have the, the basic details, the meds, the, the test results, you know. Going back for some time, you'll remember even, you know, back two years ago, uh, they did a press briefing, Ronnie Jackson did, where he came out and talked about the president's potassium and his sodium, and he's on these various medications. At no point did he say that the, patient, uh, the president also had a coronary CT scan to evaluate him for heart disease. Never offered up that information. It only came out because I asked him about it, and then he said it. So he tells us basic lab values correct, but doesn't tell us about an abnormal test result in a very significant exam. And that's been a pattern that we've seen over and over again. 2008, John McCain let us have access to all of his medical records for a period of time. So it's varied in terms of access, but this is a, a totally different level and, and significant sins of omission, perhaps outright, uh, outright telling us false information at times. Yeah, and the reports, of course, about the doctors and others being forced to sign non-disclosure agreements after President Trump went on that secret trip to Walter Reed last year. There's obviously a lot we don't know. Uh, let me ask you, because President Trump just announced that he's expected to host an event at the White House tomorrow. 
He's expected to address the attendees from the balcony. Uh, this is just two weeks after the Supreme Court ceremony in the Rose Garden that Dr. Fauci today called a super spreader event. Um, we don't even know if he's still contagious or if he's tested negative. Yeah, I mean, and he still could be sick. I mean, don't forget, a week ago today, he was essentially medevaced from the White House to Walter Reed, dropped his oxygenation, needed supplemental oxygen, was on all these drugs that we just talked about. So this is, a, you know, he's likely still sick. I mean, it's just, we say that because you look at the time course of the disease. And again, the timeline still doesn't make total sense here. It, it changed even a little bit today as I was doing some reporting on this. But nevertheless, he is likely still sick. But Jake, even before the president's diagnosis, the idea in the middle of a pandemic of having an event, aggregating people together, even if it's outside, we saw, as you mentioned, what happened before. I mean, that was a super spreader event in that many people became infected as a result of that event or the events right around it. So regardless of whether the president has COVID, that's not a good idea. That's a great point. That Even if he is uh, no longer contagious, which we do not know, it's still a bad idea. Listen to uh, Trump coughing on Hannity last night. I think the first debate, they... Excuse me. On the first debate, they oscillated the mic. Well, I want him to vote, but I will say this. Absentee is okay. Because absentee ballots... Excuse me. Absentee ballots are fine. I mean, he sounds sick to me. Yeah, I mean, you know, look, I I I think he's still sick. I mean, you know, this could be a a sort of, you know, a a milder cough. But again, in the context of he was medevaced a week ago. He's been on oxygen recently, all these drugs. He's probably still on the steroids again if he's following the basic trial protocol. Um, He's 74 years old. I mean, he, he's, I mean, just uh, from, from a humanity standpoint, I mean, the guy should just take a break for a while. I, I hope that his doctors are telling him that. I don't, he's just not listening. I've had patients that have been difficult to counsel in the past as well. And sometimes you just got to sit down and really have a tough conversation. I don't know if that's happening or not, but I agree, Jake. He sounds sick and he's had this significant medical history over the last week. And he has pre-existing conditions and he's clinically right. obese. Sanjay, thank you so much. Appreciate it. Be sure to tune in tomorrow for a new CNN Global Town Hall. Coronavirus facts and fears. Dr. Sanjay Gupta, Anderson Cooper uh, will be joined by other experts in their field. That's tomorrow at 8 p.m. Is the plot to kidnap the Michigan governor just the tip of an extremist iceberg? That story coming up. In our national lead, the governor of Michigan, Democrat Gretchen Whitmer, is now explicitly calling them domestic terrorists. We're talking about a group of suspects accused of planning to kidnap her and overthrow the government. Michigan's attorney general says groups such as the Wolverine Watchmen are making similar plans across the United States. Thirteen men now charged with alleged domestic terrorism for their planned attack. CNN Sarah Seidner joins me now. And Sarah, you spoke to the owner of the store where the suspected terrorist plot leader was living. What did you learn? Yeah, we talked to uh, a gentleman named Bryant Titus. He says that they were friends. He's known him for a very long time uh, and that he had just been kicked out of his uh, place where he was living with his girlfriend. He offered him a place to live. He had been uh, working for Titus as well. Uh, his name is Adam Fox, and the FBI says he is uh, the, the, was the leader of this plot to overthrow the government. And-
and also to try and kidnap uh, the Michigan governor. Um, and so he says, look, he was living down in this basement. And it's, it's quite an interesting shot when you see him uh, opening up this very heavy wooden, um, what looks like a door that's on the floor. And then you walk down deep into the basement. He was living there with his dogs. But he said, you know, everything was fine until he started noticing packages showing up. Um, and he was concerned about what he was seeing in those packages from Amazon. I knew he was getting more from Amazon. He was getting buying more stuff. What was he getting from Amazon? Like uh, MREs, food, stuff like that. So survival stuff. That it yeah. Like? And I told him you have to have your own place on one November. Well, he was buying more like attachments for like an AR-15. So you heard him talking about him buying attachments for um, AR-15s, buying MREs, uh, that, that's, you know, food that can be stored for a very long time, sort of like a survival mode. And he got he got a bit worried and said, you know what, you're going to have to leave. Like, you, you can't stay here. Uh, he said that he was aware that um, that Fox had been part of a self-styled uh, militia group but had been kicked out, he said. He said then Fox created his own self-styled uh, militia. Um, now. Now he is charged uh, with many different charges, but charged in what is being considered a domestic terrorist plot to try and kidnap the governor. Jake? And Sarah, the Governor Whitmer has directly tied the, the president's refusal to condemn specific far-right violent groups, not to mention his encouragement of protesters against her. She's tied that to this plot. President Trump responded by again attacking her and how she's governing. Yeah, she did. And, and, and look, let's, let's listen to what some of the things that she's been saying. She talked about when he was at the presidential debate and how uh, he was unable to very clearly condemn white supremacists. Um, she then talks about also that uh, she sees him as encouraging extremists. Anyone who uh, gives safe harbor to or encouragement to is complicit. And that's precisely what he did on the national stage in the middle of a presidential debate when he said, stand, stand by. She also uh, talked about the, the president lambasting her for how she's handled the coronavirus. Um, and he did it again. Uh, his response to her saying that was that uh, she's done a terrible job, that she locked down her state for everyone um, and then failed to thank what he said his Justice Department and his federal law enforcement officers uh, for foiling this plot. Um, and he says that he is, you know, he's always stood against white supremacy. So you have a, a very strong political back and forth going back and forth between the president and the woman who was named uh, as a potential victim in this plot. Jake? All right, Sarah Seidner, thank you so much. The FBI director, Christopher Wray, has been warning that violent far-right extremism is the top domestic threat to the United States. The Department of Homeland Security just released its threat assessment report, which showed 2019 was the most deadly year for extremism in the United States since the Oklahoma City bombing in 1995. Joining us now to talk about all this is former federal prosecutor Laura Coates and the former director of communication for U.S. national intelligence during the Obama years, Sean Turner. Sean, how much worse do you think things are going to get with this far right violence? Well, Jake, I think there's pretty good evidence to suggest that this is going to get a lot worse before it gets better. Look, I think that we are seeing a resurgence in militia and a militia movement in this country. And there's some pretty clear indicators of that. 
like as we watch these groups, we're seeing that militia groups are showing up at counter at, at uh, peaceful protests around the country in numbers unlike anything we've ever seen before. Uh, in every state, we're seeing these groups show up. They're heavily armed and uh, they are, are standing side by side and oftentimes with law enforcement and sometimes they're impersonating law enforcement in order to get things done. We're also seeing an increasing sophistication in the way that they're communicating. Uh, it's really startling to see that I'm seeing some of the very same types of tactics that we saw with foreign terrorist organizations and the way that or these organizations here in the United States are trying to conceal their communication. And the other, the other really significant indicator is that their recruiting is unlike in the past. It's open. It's uh, it's out there. It's uh, it's blatant. And so these groups are growing significantly in every state across the country. So from my perspective, there's pretty clear indicators here that this is the kind of thing that's going to touch every state across the country and something that every governor ought to be concerned about. Well, th- what you, you just said is what the attorney general in, in Michigan uh, said. Take a listen. What we're seeing here in Michigan right now, it's not just a Michigan problem. It's an American problem. Uh, and I, I think there's going to be more incidences to come. Laura, if you were advising governors, what would you tell them? Well, first of all, I mean, it's just so terrifying to think of the notion that this is probably the tip of the iceberg, as Sean and the Attorney General of Michigan has noted about this very issue. But of course, this all goes back to leadership from the top. And if people are increasingly becoming empowered and emboldened with winks and a nod or not even as subtle as that, by feeling somehow that they are validated or justified in their conduct, by perhaps the president of the United States through his commentary or any other leader, well, then the governors have to individually make sure that they are able to harness this issue to contain it by ensuring that their laws and that the consequences for actions like this are carried out through prosecutions like what we're seeing in Michigan, that there will be no safe harbor for terrorism within the United States of America, within the boundaries of individual states, that they are confident in their prosecutions and in their investigations, then the deterrent aspect of justice may be able to curb what has become an explosion of this sort of rhetoric. Because deterrence is one of the key ways you actually are able to stop behavior, not just by the threat of of a law existing, but actually prosecuting those who even develop plans, let alone carry them out. Sean, um, you heard the the governor of Michigan blaming the president in part uh, for this planned attack. We should note there is no evidence that we have seen at all that members of this group were specifically motivated by Trump. Um, He did tweet out back in April to liberate Michigan. uh, And obviously he has gone back and forth on whether or not white supremacist groups or or far right groups uh, should be specifically condemned. One day he'll do it. The next day he will refuse to do so. What do you make of all this? There's this thing called stochastic terrorism. I think that's the term for it, where the idea where you you know, you create uh, an environment through your words Uh, that encourages people to take the law into their own hands and and act violently. Uh, Do you think that that is a factor here or could be? Well, it certainly could be, Jake. Look, it's it's legitimate to ask ourselves, what has changed over the past several years that have caused these groups to uh, come out of the woodwork? Uh, Look, it's always been the case that these groups existed, and at any given time, they were more active in some states than others. But over the past several years, we've seen these groups sort of activate in states all across the country. And so we have to ask ourselves, what's happening that's that's causing that? Now, I think that the answer is, is pretty clear. What's happened is that these groups have been led to believe that they no longer have to exist in the shadows. In fact, I'd go even further to say that a lot of these groups believe that they now have a mandate to rise up 
and to uh, to, to uh, take their political disputes to the streets. That mandate that they believe they have is oftentimes because of the, the political rhetoric that we see in this country. It's oftentimes because of what the president says. Look, when we look at these groups at protests all across the country, these militia groups are there. And so often, what are they carrying with them? Not just their guns, not just their AR-15s, not just their military gear, but they, they're often carrying signs that support the president. Okay, so I think it's pretty clear that the president's rhetoric is having a significant impact on this. And, Laura, the big concern uh, right right now is that if President Trump loses, and who knows what's going to happen, it's in the hands of the voters, but if he does lose, uh, that he incites some of these groups, uh, and who knows what happens. Well, first, I want to be very clear that we don't have, as you mentioned, Jake, the direct correlation between the actions of these individuals in Michigan who are acting specifically at the express mandate or behest of the president. And, you know, normally in the law, the more context a prosecutor has to provide in order to create a causal link, the less likely they're going to be able to determine that causal link for the benefit of the jury, let alone the court of public opinion. Having said that, you're absolutely right about the idea of what the president has said and his rhetoric and about the numerous calls to action that he has had or even what people would like to hear. And if he's well aware that his words could be interpreted in a way that would incite violence, that would incite criminal behavior, then he should be more cautious. But there's a track record here. This summer, remember with George Floyd's killing, he said the, you know, when the looting starts, the shooting starts. There hasn't been a causal connection to people making that statement with any um, crimes have been committed. And of course, he know he's already successful in a case by those who said that he incited violence against him in Louisville. So he has a difficult track record, yet we can't always prove it in the law. Laura Coates, Sean Turner, thanks to both of you. Appreciate it. Coronavirus just reached a mark in the United States that has not happened in two months. It's not a good mark. We'll tell you what it is next. Back now with our national lead. Coronavirus cases are rising across every region in the country. Just yesterday, the nation reported more than 56,000 new infections, the most new cases added on a single day in months. Today, a majority of states are seeing cases trending up. And as CNN's Nick Watt reports, some states are also facing record high hospitalizations. A new outbreak at a nursing home here in California, nine dead. I'm trying to prepare myself that I'm never going to see my mom in person again. In New Jersey, average new case counts are up over 60% these past two weeks. New Mexico's governor is worried. We're in a pretty difficult spot in the state of New Mexico right now. We are at extreme risk of uncontrollable spread. 56,191 new coronavirus cases reported in the U.S. Thursday, the most in nearly two months. This is really something we need to pay attention to. These 10 states have more COVID-19 patients in the hospital now than ever before. These three states, Kansas, South Dakota, Tennessee, just logged their most COVID-19 deaths in a single day. Over the course of this pandemic, we've seen hotspots, spikes, rolling waves. The state of Florida. Arizona's at a real crossroads. The hospitalization rate here in California. Up one place, down in another. But right now, every region in this country is on the rise. New York saw hell in the spring, now seeing spikes, some centered on religious communities. 
They're not following the rules. We know what happens when you don't follow the rules. The infection rate goes up. Broadway, now shuttered until at least the end of May, went dark mid-March, will stay dark for more than a year due to a virus. The NFL now juggling its schedule, reacting to outbreaks. Patriots Broncos now moved from Sunday to Monday. Titans Bills will now play Tuesday. Meanwhile, the president, fresh from a dose of Regeneron's experimental treatment, says Regeneron and Eli Lilly will get FDA emergency use authorization to roll out their antibody therapies. But hold on. Promising results among small numbers of patients to approaches that include antibody therapies are not a substitute for the rigorous scientific review that is essential, says a group of prominent medical societies in a plea to the FDA. That's where we are. Medical professionals clubbing together to implore a government agency to ignore the president. And today, our planet set an unwanted record. More than 350,000 COVID-19 infections reported worldwide. So here's where we are. A virus that we didn't even know existed a year ago has now infected more than 36 million people across our globe. And Jake, a ridiculously disproportionate number of those infections are right here in the United States. Jake? Including among the president of the United States who is resuming campaign activity, whether or not he's infectious and contagious. Nick Watt, thanks so much. Joining us now, the director at the Center for Infectious Disease Research and Policy at the University of Minnesota, uh, Michael Osterholm. Um, Michael, thanks so much for joining us. So the U.S. reported uh, the the most new daily cases in nearly two months on Thursday. Cases have surged by 12 percent since just last week. Why is this surge happening? What do we need to be doing in the United States that we are obviously not doing? Well, actually, the surge was predictable. We actually talked about it more than a month ago. It starts out, first of all, with college students coming back to universities and colleges, and we're seeing substantial transmission there, which then is spilling over into the older adult population, those with underlying health problems. Then we see people who basically have come to their end of pandemic fatigue uh, and and holding things up, and they're just going to go do what they want to do, and that's what's happening. Uh, Then we see pandemic anger, about a third of the population that doesn't believe this pandemic is real. They think it's a hoax. And so they're going to do whatever they want to do. If you look right now at funerals, weddings, family reunions, uh, athletic events, uh, bars and restaurants, uh, we're at an all-time high for transmission. And this is going to get a lot worse before it even considers leveling off. In the Northeast, the average of new cases is up a staggering 91 percent since one month ago. Um, Do you anticipate a full-blown second wave of cases, or has the first wave not even ended? Well, you know, um, as you and I have talked before, I'm not really convinced these are waves. Uh, This is like a forest fire, where if you suppress it and hold it down, you may have embers left, but you don't have a big forest fire. And what has happened is every time we have these, uh, these increased number of cases we saw in April, we saw again in July, some areas do lock down a bit, slow transmission down, but then give up after several months of that and they come right back. That's what's happening right now around much of the country. New York is an example where uh, you know, they did an incredible job for 14 weeks keeping case numbers down. Finally, members of certain communities in New York City decided they 
were tired of the, uh, what they needed to do, and lo, we have cases. I think we have so many people right now that have given up on this pandemic long before the virus ever gave up on us. We're just going to continue to see this ever-increasing number of cases out there. It'll far surpass what we saw uh, in July when we were at our worst of, of the pandemic to date. We just learned that President Trump is holding an event at the White House tomorrow on the South Lawn. Um, the White House has yet to announce that he's tested negative for coronavirus. He's expected to address attendees from a balcony. Uh, would you go to that event if invited? Well, I wouldn't go right now because I think the White House itself is, uh, uh, has a fair number of infections. The hot zone. I mean, if he's, up, if he's up on the balcony and he's not near the people, then he doesn't really pose any risk. But I think the issue is, again, uh, the White House has not really gotten its act together in terms of the prevention program that they need to have. Uh, you know, I said three months ago that what they had done to use these rapid tests to protect the president was akin to giving squirt guns to the Secret Service and telling him to uh, protect the president against an assassin. The program was absolutely illogical and terribly inadequate. Uh, so unless they've changed that, I don't see any reason why one can assume that there's going to be less transmission at the White House now than there was several weeks ago. So that's good news on that, but uh, in terms of the president won't necessarily pose a harm although the White House itself is a, is a potential hot zone. Um, yes. But the Trump campaign just announced that President Trump will be participating in a rally in Sanford, Florida on Monday. What would you tell somebody who said to you, is it okay for me to go to that event? Forget the, forget the question about whether or not President Trump is contagious or infectious, which we still do not know among so many things we don't know about his condition. I mean... The president, we're still in the middle of this pandemic and he's holding a rally. Right. You know, uh, what more can be said? I mean, just the very nature of asking the question states the obvious. I think the challenge we have is helping the American people understand if you bring people together, even when they're outdoors, it's less risk of transmission being close together outdoors, but it's surely not zero. When you bring people together when it's indoors, it's almost guaranteed today with the level of virus out there to pose a significant risk. So, I mean, right now, I've been saying this uh, for several weeks, any politician, I don't care what party you are, uh, you need to be mindful of your own safety and that of your staff, let alone the people who you're bringing together. And so, you know, this, this is between now and the time of the election, the worst possible time to be bringing people together in crowds. And Florida, just in, in the last day, reported 2,900 new infections just in that one state. Well, Florida is ripe for another large outbreak. What they've done is opened up everything as if nothing had ever happened there. And you and I could be talking probably in eight to ten weeks, and I, I will likely bet that Florida will be a house on fire. Uh, you know, this is what's so sad about this. We know these things are going to happen. You know, it's not like you can escape this virus. You know, I, I find it just illogical that people think just because they get done with the virus, the virus is done with them. It's not. And so watch Florida, eight to ten weeks, and you and I will both be saying, why did they let this happen? We've been saying this since, I mean, since we've been having these conversations. And we have. starting in February or March, you, you, you have constantly been predicting what would happen based on the behavior of the president and the governors who have been listening to him and the behavior of the American people that are refusing to acknowledge the reality. It happens. And we say it's not only predictable, it was literally predicted. 
And, and not only that, Jake, but we're now creating pseudoscience that makes it worse. The state of North Dakota, right now, North Dakota and South Dakota are the two worst states in the entire country. And the state has just decided that if each person has a mask on, the other person doesn't have to quarantine if the one person becomes infected. You know, mask, everyone should mask. But to say that that is what you should do with quarantine, there are no data to support that whatsoever. How, when your house is on fire more than anyone else's in the whole country, can you do that? It was a political decision. It had no science. We need to let science drive the day right now, and it's not. Michael, I'll just say, as I bid you farewell for the weekend, I wish that at one point you had been wrong in any of the things that you've projected and predicted, uh, but you've been right the whole time, and it just must be maddening. Well, and you know what scares me, Jake, is it's going to get a lot worse. I'll put it right here out right now. You can go and come back to this a couple weeks from now. It's going to get much worse. I'm, uh, yeah. Michael uh, Osterholm, thank you so much for your time. We really appreciate Thanks, it. Thanks, Jake. Not once, Bye. not twice. Louisiana residents are bracing for a fourth hurricane, a fourth hurricane to make landfall. We're going to go live to the Gulf Coast next. Stay with us. Breaking news in the national lead. You're listening to the howling sounds of Hurricane Delta nearing landfall along the Gulf Coast, shattering records as it does. A good portion of this hurricane is already over land. Parts of Texas and Louisiana have been feeling intense winds and rain for hours now. Delta will be the 10th named storm to hit the U.S. That's the most ever in one year. Four of those named storms hit Louisiana. Let's go to meteorologist Tom Sater in CNN's Severe Weather Center. Uh, Tom, Hurricane Delta has been hitting the Gulf Coast for hours now and has not even made landfall yet. How long will Delta be a problem and will the impact of Hurricane Laura in August affect what we see from Hurricane Delta? Well, I'll tell you what, 30,000 houses were destroyed six weeks ago yesterday with Laura. Another 35,000 were damaged. I mean, power's still out as they're rebuilding the power grid. And we already have reports of 50,000 without power. Some, Jake, just got their power back on last week. The storm system has lost strength. It's now a category two. That was forecast to happen. However, it is much broader in its wind field. Hurricane winds extend outward from the center a good 50 miles. Tropical storm force winds are out 160. So it's a category two strength. Landfall, it's only 35 miles off the coast, just south of Cameron. So between seven and eight o'clock, flooding surge, we're already seeing over six feet, uh, foot storm surge, seven to 11 feet as possible. Houston, you've got tropical storm force gust at 40. New Orleans also has tropical storm force winds. But again, the pattern of rain is dying down somewhat, but you can see where the center is here, Jake. And again, we're just a little way away from landfall, only within 10 miles of where we had, of course, the landfall of Lara. But it's to the east of the section that is the big concern where we're having that storm surge already affect so many areas that were destroyed. So with that, the winds, there are thousands of homes that have blue tarps, and they are not going to be able to survive these hurricane winds that will move out of the region by tomorrow morning. All right, Tom, thanks so much. Finally today, We'd like to take a moment to remember one of the lives cut short by coronavirus. More than 213,000 have died uh, in the United States from coronavirus. Chad Dorrell was 19 years old, 19. He was an avid basketball player. He made the all-conference team in high school. He was a sophomore at Appalachian State studying to become a physical therapist. Dorrell started feeling sick in early September, and he passed away 
on September 28th. His classmates say his death is a reminder that young people are not invincible to this horrific virus. May his memory be a blessing. Our deepest condolences to his family. Tune in to CNN State of the Union this Sunday morning. My guests include White House Director of the National Economic Council, Larry Kudlow, Joe Biden's Deputy Campaign Manager, Kate Bedingfield, and Democratic Senator from Hawaii, Maisie Hirono. You can see it at 9 a.m. noon Eastern on Sunday. Our coverage on CNN continues right now. I'll see you Sunday morning. When you work, you work next level. When you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number Smart Beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 Smart Bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So, you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.